0: I have a, a pretty. Um, it's a. It's an important message. Not like any any important is, or any message isn't important, but I feel like this is an, an important message because it's a concept that has been, in my opinion, put to the side in a lot of um, the church in general, um, as well as just the way Christians represent and and talk about God. Um, you know, I'm coming out of a season in my own life that has really humbled me. And has, has shown me a lot of my inadequacies as, as a leader and uh, my deeper dependence on God. Um, and it was part of this, this message, it was kind of a prelude into it, that, that really showed me that this character and nature of God that we're going to talk about today. Um, but it was also very encouraging. God put a lot of people in my life to speak some great messages into, my, into what I was experiencing Um, and, and one such person was my brother. He's a a pastor as well in in Colorado and I was interviewing him, uh, for a project I was working on and I asked him, I said, you know, he's been a pastor for probably 12 years. And I asked him, how do you deal with discouragement in ministry? How do you deal with cynicism? I felt like I was kind of being cynical and it was really affecting my life and the people around me. And, and he, he's what you call a, uh, A naive optimist. Those are his words, not mine. And he kind of looked at me, and we were Skyping over the over the um, or FaceTiming through iPad through the iPad. And he said, he said, Kelly, how could you be discouraged when you carry a message that is so good? And that was that was okay, bro. You know, like that kind (laughs) of that kind of shut me up and and really kind of set it forth as far as put it in, in a priority of what this is. And I'm hoping that this message too is an encouraging, is encouragement to you, but it also gives you a realistic nature of who God is. And today we're talking about justice. You know, uh, Jody brought mercy last week, and I'm kind of bringing the hammer with ju- judgment on this one. So um, bear with us as we, as we come through this, but there's this going to be a lot of good stuff, I feel, uh, for this body that God has poured into my heart these last couple weeks, and I'm excited to share with you. well, let's pray before I jump into it. Father, we just come before you in in complete awe of your goodness and of your justice, Lord. We just, um, I pray that you open up people's hearts and their ears so they will hear and believe in what you are and who you are, of what your message is, that it is a good message, that it is good news that I bring today. And Lord, I pray that this message will not go unheard or left with with any kind of unbelief, but that it will sit at the core of who we are, that we will yearn to know more, that we will seek you in deeper ways, that we will spend this time cultivating a relationship with you that will spill out to our friends, our families, our neighbors, Lord, that people will know us by the gospel that we bring. It is a unique gospel to anything else that's ever been said or given. It is the good news of Jesus. Just stir in our hearts, Lord, and allow us to to not leave today unchanged, but to be able to walk out these doors with a realignment and a refreshing of who we are in you. In your name I pray, amen. So everyone talking about justice has a concept of it. I think we would all agree as a society we all need justice. I I don't know if you've never talk to anybody who's like, you know, justice isn't important. It's an important aspect of both society and also a form of knowing God. Societies have had different forms of justice throughout history. We all love the concept of justice in the form of movies. I think you would agree we all cheer for the good guys against the bad guys. You know, we all love the superhero movies. I think we all really, we all cheered when Danielson Crane kicked Johnny Lawrence in The Karate Kid. Uh, that's what we call karate justice. Um, and so we, we love the, the concept of the good guy prevailing and, and the bad guy getting what he deserves. That's something we cheer for. We, we understand that. We, we look at our society today and we cheer the justice system on when it does do a proper punishment to somebody who, who deserves it. And it can be, of course, misused. It can be blurred. We definitely have seen that in our, in our society as well. So I think it's important to start with the definition of justice before we go too far into it. Let's, let's define what we're talking about today. So we're looking at um, A.W. Tozer a lot for kind of the skeletal side of, of this series. He's got a lot of great um, wisdom and knowledge that he's poured into his literature and books. And so he defines justice this way. He says, justice embodies the idea of moral equity, and equity, and the, and equity the exact opposite, That's why it's called inequity. It's not iniquity, it's inequity, exact opposite of equity. The absence of equality from human thoughts and acts. And then, of course, he goes into, once there's justice, there's also judgment. Judgment is the application of equity to moral situations. It may be favorable or unfavorable according to whether the one under examination has been equitable or inequitable in heart and conduct. So what he's talking about here is justice is a moral equality. That there is a line in the sand, as they say, that's why I named the sermon this, because there's a moral equality, which is a fair, impartial, correct, moral side. And then the exact opposite, inequity, which is the, the immoral, the unfair side. So with that, just, that two form of justice, there also comes the application, which we see in the form of judgment. The application of justice that reveals equity, the fairness, moral, and the inequity, the unfair and immoral. So if I put inequity up there, it's probably a typo. Inequity, inequity. So that's where the two forms of the line that we're looking at. So if you imagine a, a straight line going down this room, there's inequity and inequity. And that's what we're looking at with justice. The embodiment of moral fairness and the embodiment of immoral unfairness. So as we look at that, we need to first then examine through the lens of God. Now, justice is important because it's easy to take justice and say, you know what, this is just something that God performs. That God is, is, is a performer of justice. He is the enactor of justice, which is true. But it's also the very character and nature of God. Deuteronomy 32.4 is a great example. It says, The rock, speaking of God, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just, equity, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, inequity, not iniquity, inequity. When I talk about God and justice together, I'm not talking about an independent criterion. You can't separate the two from God. Tozer goes on to say that justice, when used of God, is a name we give to the way God is, nothing more. And when God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform, Okay, that's important. He's not conforming to the way that we understand justice. He in itself is justice. So to understand justice is to understand God. But is simply acting like Himself in a given situation. So when God is enacting justice, He is acting in Himself. He is acting like Himself. You cannot separate the two from Him. He is justice. One example of this. Is gold. Look at the element of gold. It is an element in itself and can never change or compromise it. It is gold. The element of it is gold. In the same way, God in His character is just, and that never changes or compromises. The, the kind of the four square main verse Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same can go to, can go with this type of a, a concept with justice. It's not only that God acts in just ways, he is the embodiment of justice in character and nature. So when we talk about justice, we're talking about God. We're talking about the very essence, the very nature, the very character of the God we serve and love. Yeah. That is good news. Yes. It is good news and there's one reason God is good is because he is just. That's right. He is just. And part of that, and part of that, is that uh, Jesus or God is judge. So not only is He justice in character and nature, but He's also the applicant of justice. A judge is someone who makes the the tough decisions, right? He says that this is the just and this is not. And and for us, that is God. Since God is the embodiment of justice and nature, He is naturally the direct best for the application of judgment. Wouldn't you agree? If God is just, fair, in every way, and knows everything, which we're going to talk about a lot next week, it's fair to say that he has the only authority who can actually make judgment right. correctly. Mm-hmm. Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two says, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Psalm 50, verse 6, And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. You'll see a lot of the the use of righteousness, the use of mercy, and the use of justice collected, connected here. That's important to realize. Psalm 9, 8, And he will judge the world in righteousness, in in correctness, in in impurity. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity, with fairness, with fairness, with what they deserve. God is orderly in his fairness. He, there, there are no mistrials with God. There are no, oops, I made a mistake with God. His judgments are always final and perfect. Now, in our society, there's a lot of people who will say that's not correct. There's a lot of people who will say, you know, there, this God that you serve, I read about him in the Old Testament. He's, so, he's very different than in the New Testament. And I always, this is something I picked up from other pastors, but I always like to tell them, have you ever read the book of Revelation? Because that God in Revelation is the same God I read a lot about in the Old Testament. One, one thing they like to talk about a lot, um, and oh, let me go back a little bit too, is I heard a great line from, uh, from Andy Minio. Thanks, Angela, for correcting me. Thank you. Anybody heard of that, that singer before? Okay, cool. More than first service. That's good. <clears throat> Andy Minio, he said in one of his lines, God is good, but he isn't safe. And that really struck me because we love to talk about God is good, which is great. But I think there's something that we forget to, to grasp around the fact that he's not safe necessarily. And, and when I was preparing for the, the sermon and in my own personal devotional times, I've been reading the Old Testament and I spent a lot of time in Leviticus and Numbers. You're welcome, by the way. Um, and and it, it's clear to me that God is good, but he's definitely not safe. He takes his authority. He takes his judgment. He takes everything he says with extreme seriousness. And I think there's times where we can fall into this concept of Jesus who's affirming of everything, accepting of everything, And I think he accepts everybody, but he doesn't affirm everybody. I think that's an important concept that sometimes we don't let leak, and we lose the fear of God once that happens. So one such judgment that we read about in the Old Testament that gets a lot of uh, criticism is God's judgment of the Canaanites. Has anybody ever spoken to somebody who has brought up God's judgment of the Canaanites as an argument against the character of God? Yes. Yes. Multiple people. Good. Good. So one atheist uh, wrote this about, about our God. He said, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A this is a lot of big words, so bear with me here. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infantile, genocidal, filicidal, pestilental, sodomos- sodomosfistic, capriciously malevol- malevolent bully. Wow. I think he's got a pretty strong opinion. <laughs> I think that's, uh, it's interesting because if you study the reader, he also talks a lot about how morality is not objective um, and how there can't be morality. Of course, that, that, verse, that passage itself kind of defutes that. But what he doesn't understand is he, he clearly doesn't understand God. He doesn't know God. He doesn't understand the nature of God. What he's doing is, is a very humanistic thing to do, is to say, you know what, humanity is the centerpiece of all things, and therefore we have the ability to judge everything else. He doesn't understand about the creative order of things where God is the judge of all things. And he also doesn't understand, which I think a lot of us sometimes forget, is that, it's a, that God does get angry. I think, I mean, it's, it's easy. Even for me, when I was reading these Old Testament passages, I was like, man, God gets angry quite a bit against Israel, his people. And we read about it. He says, the anger of the Lord burned against them is something that we see a lot. Or, he turned his face away from them. We see that often as well. And so we need to understand that the judgment of God is a righteous judgment, but it's also a very patient judgment. So when we're talking about these, these tough verses like God's judgment of the, the Canaanites, He let these people exist for 400 years before bringing his judgment. His mercy was so great that he pulled his people out of Canaan, of Canaan, yeah, and brought them into Egypt so that they would be spared from what was about to happen and the depravity that was to happen. And if you study the Canaanites at all, you'll understand that they were probably one of the worst of the worst. One writer read, so this about him, he says, even by ancient standards, The Canaanites were a hideously nasty bunch. Their culture was grossly immoral, decadent to its roots. Its debauchery was dictated primarily by its fertility religion that tried eroticism of all varieties to the successful agrarian cycles of planting and harvest. I feel like that was the most censored version of that. I mean, these guys were rough. I mean, I was joking around that the Canaanites would make Las Vegas look like Provo. (laughs) Like it is, like Las Vegas has nothing on these guys. I mean, you and one of the worst things that they were guilty of was they worshiped Moloch, which was children's sacrifice. I mean, you know it's bad when the Romans are looking at people like, those guys are messed up, (laughs) right? Like, that's bad. So for 400 years, God put off a judgment of these people. He was patient. He removed his people from the land so they wouldn't be a part of what was, could come. And he used them as the execution of that judgment. A fair and moral judgment. Because when you put God on this judgment seat, you understand that they are guilty. And, it's because, and it wasn't because of a, an ethnic cleansing or any kind of thing that we would perceive in our 21st century minds of, of genocide in Deuteronomy 9.5, it says, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. It wasn't for anything else other than the fact that they were wicked, a judgment made by God, a fair moral judgment. And that brings us into how we understand the judgment, which in today we would say is the law. You understand that driving over the speed limit is breaking the law. Well, God has given us a law, a set of rules that can, can show us and reveal us things about himself. So like I said before, Leviticus, there's about 613 commandments in total. We're going to go over each and every one today. Just kidding. But it was established to do things like bless people, obviously. In the Old Testament, it was to, to show the separation the Israelites have to the Canaanites and to the rest of the world, that there is something unique about these people. It reveals a very character of God to man. And it preserves the line of Abraham up through David and and through to the Messiah. God had to make this line exist. (laughs) He had to keep it alive. The sin of the Canaanites, the sin of the world could have destroyed it. But he's like, I'm going to give you this so we can preserve this, but also bless people and much, much more. But in the New Testament, we see the law being used in its fulfillment. We see the law that was given to us for a reason. Romans 3, 19 through 20, Paul says, Now we know that whenever, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious, 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 of our sin. So the law teaches us that we can't add up. It shows us that wow, I'm guilty. Now if you imagine yourself in a courtroom and you're sitting at the defendant's seat, you're guilty. The judge has decided you're guilty. And the good thing is is you're not alone in that judgment seat at least. You're not if there was a boat it'd be you know have to hold a billion people however many are there in this world because sin is the great equalizer of humanity everyone's guilty of it we're kind of born with it as they say but it's through the law that one becomes aware of their own their own immorality their own inequity and all of humanity is guilty Romans 3:23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god so if you're in this room You're guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. We're all guilty. And then Jesus even takes the law, and he adds a different layer to it. He says, you know, before it was all about your actions. He's like, now I'm going to go for the heart. Matthew 5, 21 through 22 shows us this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the words of Jesus. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he says... You may not have committed adultery in the action, but the moment that you looked at somebody and you envisioned it, the moment you wanted it, the moment in your heart you said, I want that, you've committed adultery. Again, in Matthew five twenty-seven to 28 you have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be the subject to judgment. Again, Jesus says, but I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, he goes straight to the heart. Jesus spoke to the heart of man. And he said, even if you're angry, you've burned against somebody in an anger of hatred, then you're guilty of judgment. And then there might be even some of you in this room that says, well, at least I haven't done any of that. Let me just break you down a little bit more, Kevin. Okay? Because that doesn't work either. James two ten says, "For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it." So the whole defense of God, I didn't. At least I didn't do what those guys did. That doesn't work. Because who has told a lie in this room? Who has coveted something of their neighbors in this room? It doesn't take long to to show a sinner they're a sinner by the law, just by asking a few questions. You get to the true nature of man and humanity because of the law. The law reveals to us that we are in desperate need of rescuing, that we cannot do it because you will not and cannot uphold the laws of the Old Testament. It is a, the law was given for a purpose, and Jesus was the purpose. And then in God's law, there always, de- always demands a reparation and a restoration. Again, as you read through, if you, I, I tell you, go read through Leviticus and Numbers. It's great. I know a lot of you probably are like, well, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm going to kind of stay out of that. <laughs> I, it's, great, it's awesome. You will pick up a lot of things about Jesus in Leviticus and Numbers. It's crazy. It's awesome. But what you'll see is that there's always a reparation, a, a payment of types. You'll hear also the word atonement, stuff like that a payment of types, but God always has the plan of restoring those people. So he says, you know what? You sinned against me, go sacrifice a goat or a lamb, you know, go live outside the camp for seven days, you know, and then I'll restore you. His plan is always a reparation, a payment, and a restoration. It's always in the plan of his justice. In the Old Testament, we see it again as a sacrifice to animals. In Leviticus 4:32 through 35 is a great example it says lead the lamb to the altar and lay your hand on its head before having it killed the priest will dip a finger in the blood smear some of it on each of the four corners of the altar and pour out the rest at the foot of the altar after this all of the fat must be removed just as when an animal is sacrificed to ask my blessing then the priest will send it up in smoke to me together with a food offering and your sin will be forgiven so in the old testament there was this reparation and then there was the restoration of this forgiveness you had to give your firstborn animal your most pure your the basically it was your prized possession to these people when, when livestock was was everything you had and it was a seasonal it was never perpetual that that lamb that you sacrificed last year was not going sacrif- to was not going to fit for this year's sins so it was a continuous thing you had to do and then the priest would make the atonement for you they actually use that in in scripture So there needed to be a final reparation. There needed to be a a final payment because there was there was this consistency every year, but nothing was ever good enough. Nothing was ever pure enough to fulfill the final reparations. And now we enter the man of the hour, the reason we're all here, Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, and as I mentioned, God is judge. Jesus is judge. That's a beautiful thing. John 5:22, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So here we have Jesus, the King, the Creator of all things, as the judge. For a believer, that is a beautiful thing. For an unbeliever, that is a terrifying thing. Because remember, there's a line in the sand. And one of the most powerful things, if you leave today with one thing, I hope it's this. Jesus is the reparation. Jesus is the payment. He is the judge, and he is also the payment. Because you know why? When you're sitting in that courtroom of God, and he's delivering the verdict on you, guess what his verdict is? Mercy because everyone deserves what they were supposed to get, the justice of God is a paradox. Yeah, that's right. It makes no sense to the outside world. Right. It makes no sense. It's foolish, foolishness for those who don't believe. Yeah. Yeah. That God would send the Lamb of God. John 1.29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Directly relating to the Leviticus passage. So God's judgment for sinners that every single one of us deserves is dumped on the lamb, is carried on to the lamb. Look with, look with me on the cross for a moment. The altar, the four points of the altar and say that the humanity of Jesus suffered Cried out, took the punishment that we deserved. He cried out, Abba, Abba, God, why have you forsaken me? The humanity of Jesus shown, apparently, taking on that punishment. The blood that requires the sacrifice paid, the reparation made, the justice served, the verdict mercy on our behalf, the purpose of God fulfilled. And it's because of that, he is the line in the sand. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. A lot of people that we know, we love, are on the wrong side of the line. There's a lot of teachings that teach that you can be straddling both lines and be okay. Jesus is an exact example of why that's not the case. There's a lot of false Jesuses out there. But the one who speaks in his word is one that says we have to make a decision. Who is the truth? Who is the life? And who is the way? There is one way. And again, one of the most amazing things and every Christian's hope in, in, in grabbing onto is that Jesus is going to return. And his justice demands restoring and that he will restore. Revelation nineteen eleven through 16, this is a great example. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, his treads, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty." On his robe and on this thigh, or on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Yes. That is good news for the Christian and is terrifying news for the unbeliever. That he is going to come back with the very armies of heaven. And he is going to restore. Revelation 22, 3-5 says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. Night, in the biblical terms, is always darkness, which is always sin. They will not lead, need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. That is what I call restoring. There is judgment and there is restoring. And it's coming. It's coming for, for this world. And I just pray. And I mean, this is, this is the body. This is us. This is the church. Again, like Jody said, we, we weren't taken to heaven the moment we believed. We were put out for a purpose because this is a fact that this is going to occur. It may be in our lifetime. I pray for that. So we as a church need to be compelled by love so that people who are on the wrong side of the line in the sand first get to experience the mercy and kindness of God, but they don't have to experience the wrath of the judge, who judges in equity, in fairness and wholeness, which is a great paradox, because we all deserve it. Thank God for grace. So I ask you this question as I, as I wrap up. Where do you stand with Jesus? Where do you stand with Jesus right now? It's a tough question to answer for some. Some of you may have a knowledge of him, but is he Lord? Is he God? Is he the master of, of you in your life? Because you can... People... Knew him, right? People saw him, people read his teachings, but only a few followed him. The people who followed him knew him at a deep relational level. And it's so simple. The gospel is so simple. The good news is so simple. All you have to do is turn, repent, if I want to use the religious word, turn from your old ways, turn from sin. Embrace and believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and you will be saved. All you have to do is believe. Bring it from here to here. Can we all stand? I want to give an opportunity to respond to this message. And there's really, there's really two types of people that I want to respond, to have people respond to. One is, of course, the person who doesn't believe that this Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And I, I pray, Lord, please, this, is, this judgment is coming. This justice is real. And if you haven't given your life to this Lord, please do so. I'm begging you. My heart is for you to experience this. It is the realest thing you will ever experience in your life. The kindness is overwhelming. The mercy doesn't make sense. The other group is for those who have lost the fear of the Lord. This justice brings on a a fear of the Lord that is beyond comprehension, that seems to have escaped some of us. You can live as a child of God. But there's sometimes it's the fear of the Lord that, that, that stops us from being afraid to, to be disciplined. And we fall into things that are tough and we get disciplined because of that. So if that's you, just, just raise your hand with me and say, God, I, I just, I need you. I need that fear of you, that wisdom that comes with it. Lord, we just, we are before you humbly as your servants. God, we seek you. You are the king of all kings and Lord of lords. You are the justice the one who brings equity. Lord, we thank you for what you have given us. But I pray that we will be able to live this out. That we'll be able to live out this justice for the oppressed and the orphan. For you are the righteous avenger, Lord. It is you who takes, a, takes vengeance upon the people who are in equity, upon the immoral and the wrong. It is not upon us to do so. Lord, we give you the people who have hurt us. We give you the people who have done us wrong that we will not pay restitutions, but that you will, because you are the righteous judge. You are our righteous defender. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and the goodness that you are. And do not remove the fear of the Lord from us, Lord. Allow us to live a life that is dedicated to you, because you are the way, the truth, and the life. In the glorious name of Jesus Christ, amen.